This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and this next interview couldn't be a better follow-up to my chat with iGen Poo. As she told me, we have more senior citizens than at any other time in our history, and the number's only growing. While the crisis of care and its dual impact on both the patients and the care providers has been anticipated, it has catapulted into a different kind of urgency with the pandemic. These heroic caregivers are grossly underpaid, mostly female, and people of color. They're working through staffing shortages with a lack of personal protection equipment and few, if any, guaranteed workplace protections. They are not without an organized voice, though, thanks in large part to our guests, leaders of the Service Employees International Union Local 2015, also known as SEIU. President April Verrett and Kim Ivan, Executive Vice President, lead the nation's largest long-term care union, representing 400,000 home care and nursing home workers throughout California. So, April, I'm going to start with you. Make real for us, what are your union members facing right now? What's their reality? Oh, their reality. Um, so I should say our local union represents 400,000 caregivers across the state of California. Um, overwhelming majority of them are home care workers in 25,000 working skilled nursing facilities. They are all on the front lines of this pandemic, whether they are caring for an elderly or a person or a person living with a disability Um, The home care workers care for folks in their homes, and obviously nursing home workers work in in skilled nursing facilities. But regardless of where you do care work, you are on the front lines of this pandemic, working to make sure that the most vulnerable among us are able to shelter in place and stay safe. Um, So obviously a huge part of what caregivers are facing in this moment is fear. But I don't think that's unlike any other American, right? Any other person in this world, really, in the, excuse me, in the reality of living in COVID-19 world, right? Um, it's, It's scary out there. But our members don't have the luxury of staying home and waiting this out. They go out into the world every day with little to no protective equipment um, to continue to do the work that they do. And they still have all of the hard realities to deal with that they faced before COVID. They still have to, many of them, rob Peter to pay Paul to make ends meet. They have to worry about how they're going to educate their children who now are at home with them um, in, in a subpar educational system. They have to worry about the realities of what it's like to be a poor woman of color in this country. um, I have all of the respect and admiration in the world for our members who do more with less than anyone that I know. They really are amazingly heroic. And you're pointing out their critical importance to the people that they're caring for and their families who they're supporting, yet they're not given great tools in the form of financial support. So, Kim, talk to me a little bit about what the financial reality is for these people. Um, it is maybe startling for some people who this is their first 
sort of um, introduction to this work and these workers, but um, they are basically at the, you know, over 50% um, of just in-home support service workers are at the minimum wage. Minimum uh, wage? Yeah. And so they fight every day and they were at the forefront of fighting to lift up the minimum wage at the state level because that was an avenue by which they could push the floor up. Um, but it is a travesty that they are at the minimum wage. Um, there's many who are do not have access. They, as healthcare providers, um, they don't have access to health insurance themselves or any notion of what a retirement um, might be. Um, and you know, are still fighting for things that others may take for granted, like time off. Like we just fought for um, a few years ago to get them three sick days um, and um, right the wrongs of legislation and rules that have been um, put into place you know, for decades that um, kept them out of the same um, workplace advantages and rights as other workers. So their economic struggle is um, huge and one that has to be uh, really righted. And I think this COVID pandemic, you know, to sort of piggyback off of what April was talking about, it's really shined a light on the systemic and structural um, issues that exist in terms of in racial inequities, economic inequities for this population of women and predominantly women of color. So they are, there is a lot to work towards um, in addressing those inequities, but that is just a sort of flavor. And then I would say, you know, their wages, you know, their annual income, to give you an example, is um, uh, an annual average income for an IHSS provider, if they work the maximum amount of hours a month is $28,000 a year. These are women raising families, um, a lot of them are, they're single head of household. Um, and then in our nursing home industry, the average um, median annual earnings for um, nursing home workers, CNAs, and um, folks who um, do housekeeping and laundry and dietary is about um, $23,000 a year. So Those are some staggeringly low numbers when we think about the cost of living in this country. And especially mm -hmm. when we realize if they don't work, they don't get sick time, they don't mm -hmm. get vacation time, and they don't have health care insurance. So they have no choice but to work during a time where everyone's vulnerable the minute you step out of your door. Yeah, and then you compound that with this whole fight that has to go on to get them the equipment that they need to do that work safely to keep themselves safe, to keep the patient and consumer safe. It just is, it blows your mind. On a normal day, yeah, I, um, I, it is. It is mind-boggling, and as part of what I need your help with to make sense of this, or actually to realize how nonsensical it is, is help me understand. Um, and April, if you would take a crack at this one, sure. When you're fighting these fights, who are the fights with? When is it with the? nursing homes? When is it with the corporations that own the nursing homes? When is it with mm -hmm. state or local government, federal government? What's at play here? <laughs> it's with all of them all the time. 
Um, <laughs> I don't need to laugh, but it sounds exhausting. It, it is exhausting, but it is no, I would rather be doing nothing else. Listen, Laura, I think what we all need to understand is the historical context in which this work exists. And just like a lot of other um, areas and sectors in our economy that we call women's work, right? If you think about teachers and how low low paid teachers are relative to the education that they have uh, compared to other professions, women's work, right? If you think about nurses and, and how they are paid relative to other healthcare professionals, such as doctors, women's work. Um, our work, our members and caregivers um, are, are, are in a situation where the work that they do is not just women's work and undervalued in this country as, as much work is that women do, but it's also the work that slave women used to do. And as we are peeling back the layers in our country around our deeply rooted systemic racism, now is the time that we're really trying to lift up how race as well as gender has played a role in holding these workers back. When um, FDR um, crafted his New Deal in the 1930s, which was really how the middle class opened up for so many workers in this country, domestic work, the work that our members do, was cut out of, of that of those sets of laws that were passed because Southern lawmakers did not want these Black women, right, um, to be viewed as equal or to be viewed as workers even, right? So they were left out of labor laws. And, and still to this day, in many different statutes re regarding work and, and labor in our country, they are still referred to as companions and not viewed as workers at all. And so it's not just that we are battling the boss, as we would like to say, in the form of nursing home owners and co the corporations that own these facilities. We are also battling history and we are battling the systems and the structures that, that our economy, that our labor structures are built on. And so we are proud to say we are a union that is majority women and majority women of color. And we know that if we are going to make real gains for our members, it's going to have to be also dismantling systemic and structural racism brick by brick. And our workers are really proud to, to, to fight that fight every single day. April, you explain that in such a, an accessible, um, essential way. I really, really appreciate it because this systemic racism, like you said, you got to dismantle it brick by brick. So talk to me about what feels to me like the two-pronged approach that we wind up having to take, which is how can we, there's the moral imperative, which unfortunately often falls on deaf ears. And then is there an economic imperative? How can we get those that we can't bring around because it's the right thing to do to see that it's the economically beneficial thing to do to elevate these workers? Workers. Absolutely. Um, you, you, so you spoke before about the amazing work that, that my good friend Ajin is moving um, around, you know, waking our country up, right, about the, 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 the pending silver tsunami um, and, and the need for um, our country to really invest in care work 
And I'm proud that we finally have a presidential candidate who is making care work and plan for how to include care as a part of the economic recovery in our country. And that's because if you invest in millions of workers in this country who are currently at minimum wage, who currently depend heavily on government assistance just to make ends meet, if we can make these good family sustaining jobs, we will lift millions of families out of poverty in this country. Millions of families who can contribute in a different way to the revenue and the resources in our communities, who quite frankly can care for people cheaper than what it costs for them to go into nursing homes, which saves the government money, right? And so, and, and so how do we change how right now millions of people that rely on government assistance become contributors to our economy, if you, if, if you follow what I'm saying. And we, we, we do good, right? And we perform a much, need, a much needed function as far as taking care of, of elderly and, and disabled folks. Without a doubt. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking today with April Verrett, President of SEIU Local 2015, and Kim Ivan, the Executive Vice President. So, Kim, as you guys are figuring out, um, you're fighting battles on all fronts. How do you prioritize in this moment of COVID where your attention's going? Um, what, what's your, like when you make your list of your long-term things to do in your short-term, what's the top of those two lists right now? Leadership. You can't. more. So I would, I would add, you know, when, uh, to April's comments about the, how to look at this workforce and the jobs that we need to create and the kinds of jobs, is that they have to be union jobs. Um, they have to be, there is, um, it is the source through which people find their power and exercise it. Um, and I would say that any short-term plans that we have are long-term goals, and we have big, beautiful goals in our union, our members have charged us with around justice for all. Um, it is about leadership. It's about creating the space, the environment, for um, women in particular um, who work in this industry and elsewhere to be able to find that agency, to be able to say, I have a voice. I have a voice that is powerful and should be valued and has a unique perspective about what needs to change and should be um, a way to invite more and more women to lead on this because it's their voices, all the work that we've done up to this date, all the work to move legislation or uh, that advocates and advances the dignity of, of the work of long-term care workers, um, all of the, the fights that we have to ensure that our budgets put money in places that say we value you know, our communities and being healthy and sustainable, they, they get done because women who do this work bring voice to that. They tell the stories of the impact of those decisions. Um, they tell the stories of why those decisions have to be made. And so to me, the central equation and focus here is, is getting leaders, more and more leaders to see themselves as powerful individuals 
who have the ability to be agents of change. Um, and so that's my opinion on that. And Laura, if I may just add this, the beautiful thing about the leadership and women in particular, finding their voice, developing their leadership and becoming empowered through their union is when you are able to take on your boss, you are able to fight and, and, and have voice in every area of your life. And we have seen it happen. When a woman takes power at work, she can take power at home when she may be in a domestic violence situation. She can take power at her children, at her children's school when she needs to fight for them. She can take power in her community when she needs to fight to, for, to, to get a street light, right? Whatever it is, women learn power in the union and they never forget how to fight and how to fight for themselves and for others. And it's, yeah, really. And it, it sounds like it starts with this inter, uh, uh, the recognition internally that the way that women are living, the way the women who desperately need the work of the union and the improvement in these laws and policies, that it's intolerable. And then to have the courage to speak up. And so I want to make real for them, for the domestic care worker who is at the very beginning of this process, how can she find you or the union or start to find her voice? What's the first step for her? You know, we are, we, we work really hard to make our union accessible. The members of our union speak 10 different languages and you can call our member resource center right now and someone will answer the phone and speak to you in your language. So you don't have to worry about language barriers. You can find us on our website. Um, you can find us on social media channels. And what we, is the website? So <laughs> if somebody's that. listening right now, where do they go? SEIU2015.org. That's pretty simple. Okay. Yeah. And find us on Facebook again, SEIU2015. Great. I didn't want to interrupt, but I couldn't lose that moment. So go no, ahead. No. So they can find you online. They, they can, can call in. They can call us. Um, they, you know, we're, we're there. Um, it, we're not hard to find. And when they call, can they call, should they be calling when there's a problem? Can they call to volunteer? Um, what are the avenues into engagement for them? They, someone can call when there's a problem. Sure. They can call and just say, hey, I want to get involved in my union and someone will be able to connect them with an organizer in their area so that we can can activate folks right we like newcomers we can <laughs> become a part of our of our union you know become a member um come to a training and you can the the beautiful part about covid in many ways is that we have been forced to make sure members can be active and participate in their union from their homes. So they can join a meeting virtually. We can, you know, use technology to allow them to phone bank and connect with other members in the union. So it sounds like there are many ways to get involved and that the beauty of the community is that you've, you've maintained the connective tissue between all of you, um, even in this time of COVID, so that people don't have to hesitate if they want to get involved. If people are in a situation right now where they have deplorable working conditions, they don't have advocacy, and they need help standing up to their boss, is it the same route in to find people to help them make their case? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll connect folks with, you know, we get calls from individuals who don't yet have a union and they're calling us, especially in this moment, because I think they see and hear from care workers who are part of the union that feel like they have agency and they have their, they can take risks and be courageous because they have the support of this larger community. And so we get calls from individuals saying, how do I do that? How do I join this union? How do I get my coworkers together to talk about how we address the issues happening in these nursing homes? And so we're in contact pretty regularly with folks who are calling in from places that don't yet have an, a union and helping them to sort of find their leadership and how they build that inside their, their workplaces. For those of you who just tuned in, I'm Laura Zarrow, and you are listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132. And my guests today are April Verrett, President of SEIU Local 2015, and Kim Ivan, the Executive Vice President. So ladies, as we're wrapping things up, part of what I want to know is it's all the work that you're doing to advocate for others, to connect others, to help others raise their voices. How are you taking care of each other? How are you taking good care of your voices and the people on your immediate team? You go first. <laughs> Look, I, I would say we've been really super intentional about creating this space to just check in as whole people. Like if there is one thing that long-term care workers will teach you in a hot minute is that whole people um, need to be paid attention to, that their lives are not you can't box people in and be all about one thing or the other. And so, and they check in with hearts and minds. And so that's what we've been doing through this pandemic is just being intentional about just carving space to say, April sister, how are you, how are you feeling? How are you doing? What do you need from me to support you through it? Um, and I think some small things like that go a long way. And I know have been really helpful for keeping my heart, sort of full and my soul purposeful and positive in moments that seem really hard. So I would say that's one, one example of what we do. And I would say it helps to have a partner, right? It helps for me to be able to pick up the phone and say, Kim, I had a really shitty day and we can talk about it. And it's someone who shares my struggles and, and helps me over the hurdles. And I hope that I can do the same for her. One thing I believe that we have learned through this pandemic is that um, connectedness is important and that being um, isolated and alone is not good for the spirit. And so being able to be connected and to reach out and to have partners and to have sisterhood is, is something that I value now more than ever. And I value him for, for being that partner. That was April Verrett and Kim Yvonne, leaders of the Service Employees International Union, Local 2015. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a good week, everyone. And remember, take good care of the people who take care of you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 